that's a, uh, you know, God, God uh, is funny that way. <laughs> um, and I'm willing to bet that, that anyone in the room that has a sibling is familiar with the concept of retaliation. Uh, retaliation is kind of a, a sibling right. Uh, it's something that we all kind of go through. You don't have to have a sibling. I mean, all of us, I, I think, kind of are familiar with it, but uh, siblings are especially good at it. Um, and even though I'm the oldest, I find, I find that a lot of the times the oldest sibling is not great at retaliating. Um, so even though I'm the oldest, I was never great at this. I was never very good at getting revenge, but my brother was. He was really, really good at it. Uh, we had this fort in our backyard that my, my dad built for us, and it had a, a sandbox, and then uh, it was elevated up over top of the sandbox. We had this huge fort and a roof with shingles and everything on it and a swing set. It was very elaborate. And uh, we had this fort in our backyard that, that we would play. Uh, we play out there when we were kids all the time, but sometimes I would have friends come over, and uh, my brother uh, wasn't allowed up in the fort when my friends were over because we were older than him, and he was lame. And so... Uh, <laughs> And so we would go up in the fort, and, and that, was, that was unacceptable for him, unacceptable that he wouldn't be allowed up in the fort, and so uh, he took action to, to remedy the situation. Now, if it was me, I probably would have told on him to get him in trouble, you know, mom, you know, my, my brother won't let me up, or maybe I would just beat on him a little bit, because I was a lot bigger than he was, and just hit him a little bit, uh, but not my brother. He bided his time, uh, he waited uh, until nobody was looking, and then he went to the garage and stole a handsaw from my dad's workbench. And he used that saw to cut through each of the wooden steps of the ladder to get up into that treehouse, but not all the way through. He cut the steps a little more than halfway through, thinking, next time my big, fat, older brother climbs up into this treehouse, all the ladder steps will break, and he'll fall, and he'll be injured, and that'll show him. Um, that's, that's some next-level stuff. And he was four when he did that. <laughs> there was another time when my dad made him mad. Uh, I don't remember what dad said, but I remember what my brother did. He took a needle from my mom's sewing kit and he stuck it in my parents' bed on my dad's side so that dad would poke his leg uh, whenever he went to bed when he would go to sleep. Now that sounds bad. My parents had a water bed. <laughs> dad never did poke his leg. But he woke up with wet pants for like a week, every day for a week. And then he finally discovered this tiny pinhole in the bed where water was very, very, very slowly leaking out all night long. My brother was good at this stuff. When I, when I tried to get revenge, it would totally backfire. Uh, I remember one time he, he did something and made me mad and uh, I was going to beat him up. And uh, he ran away, and I chased him all around the house. And I thought I had him when he ran downstairs to the basement uh, because I figured I could jump the last few steps. I was this long, gangly. I was this tall when I was like two years old. And so I was this like super long, gangly guy. That's exaggerating. But when I, I haven't grown taller since I was eight. I've only grown wider. And so uh, I was very tall, and I figured I could jump the steps. But I had just been through the growth spurt that resulted in me being a freak as an eighth grader. And, uh, and when I jumped at that, to get down the stairs, I caught my forehead on the overhang. And so my feet, you know, physics would dictate my feet went out and my head went back and the back of my head hit the bottom step, the linoleum step. And I, I knocked myself unconscious. I was laying at the bottom of the steps, uh, totally unconscious. And, and when I came to, when I regained consciousness, the first thing I saw was my little brother straddling me, pointing at my face and laughing hysterically. <laughs> 
and I just saw red, like I had this rage moment. And so I jumped up, you know, jumped up and I pulled my arm back and I, you know, we didn't, we, you know, we, we would, you know, beat on each other and wrestle and stuff, but we didn't punch each other in the face. That was off limits. Not anymore. This is happening. So I like pulled my fist back and I was following through. I was, I was punching this kid in the face. This was going to happen. And at the last minute, I, I had this guilty conscience moment. And so I did one of these really awkward, like midair adjustments. And instead of punching him in the face, I changed my fist and pounded him on the top of his head. Like the most ridiculous thing you could like, you're at the arcade and you're like pounding the like weasels that are popping up. Pounded him on the top of his head with my closed fist. He cried for like 10 seconds. And I sprained my hand so badly that I couldn't use it for a week. I had, it was in a bucket of ice every night for like the next six days. And we're continuing in our, our Red Letters series this morning. We're looking at the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. In the last few weeks, we've heard about keeping our word and the dangers of lust and anger. And here today, at the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus turns his attention to revenge. He turns his attention to retribution. He turns his attention to retaliating. So starting in verse 38, Jesus explains God's heart behind the law of retribution in the Old Testament. So look with me at Matthew chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this is a difficult, challenging uh, teaching from Jesus. Uh, Eye for eye and tooth for tooth refers back to the Old Testament, refers back to what's called the law of retribution. And specifically, this law is found in three passages in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 21, uh, it says that if people are fighting and a pregnant woman is seriously injured as a result of this fight, then the guilty party is to be punished eye for eye and tooth for tooth. So it seems like a very specific situation, right? Uh, And and so eye for eye and tooth for tooth is in this situation, a a pregnant woman gets injured uh, as like kind of collateral damage of a fight. In Leviticus 24, anyone who takes the life of a person or or an animal uh, or injures their neighbor is punished eye for eye and tooth for tooth. I think in that passage, it actually even says life for life. And in Deuteronomy 19, a dishonest witness who gives false testimony about someone in court is punished eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Now, I don't exactly know how that works. I don't know what the, what the equivalent punishment is for someone who lies under oath. I don't know if you, like, we just lie about them for the rest of their life or what, what it is. But those are the passages, right, in the Old Testament where this law of retribution is laid out. Uh, when these things happen, God says, uh, you need to make sure to, to punish these things eye for eye and tooth for a tooth. And I know that sounds harsh to put it that way. It sounds harsh for the Bible to say, you know, if, if you gouge that 
that guy's eye out, then we'll gouge your eye out. But, but this, this law of retribution was intended to keep uh, the punishments from escalating. It was intended to, to keep violence from escalating by demanding that the punishment for crimes be proportional to the crime that was committed. It didn't promote revenge. It, it ensured that the punishment fit the crime. And that's a principle we still strive for in our justice system. We want punishments uh, to, be, to be fair and just, and to, we don't want to overpunish someone or underpunish them uh, for the crime that they've committed. That's what justice demands. And, and so Jesus here isn't correcting a bad law in the Sermon on the Mount, just like all these other uh, instances of Jesus saying, you've heard that it was said. He's not correcting or changing a law from the Old Testament. He's correcting what had become a bad application of the law. He's correcting what had become a wrong interpretation. The law of retribution was meant to be imposed in courts to protect the public and to punish criminals. But by the time of Jesus, people were using it to justify personal revenge. That the Bible says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you hurt me this way, so now I have a right to hurt you back. Now, the Old Testament's clear that one person is not enough to convict a person uh, of a crime. And Proverbs 20, verse 22, goes even further. Proverbs says, do not say, I'll pay you back for this wrong. Wait for the Lord, and he will avenge you. God's intention with the law of retribution in the Old Testament was for authorities to fairly impose justice so that God's people would be free to love and serve one another instead of focusing on getting revenge. Jesus is not against the idea of appropriate punishment for wrongdoing, but Jesus is insisting that we not take matters into our own hands. That's what this is about. And Jesus spoke these words at a time when Israel was under the rule of a corrupt Roman government, a government that wasn't big on administering justice fairly, especially to people who weren't Roman citizens. And so personal retribution and violent resistance to the government were kind of big issues at the time. We don't know anything about that. That stuff doesn't happen at all in our time, right? And that's what Jesus is talking about when he, he issues these tough challenges to turn the other cheek and go the extra mile. When he tells us not to resist an evil person, he doesn't mean that we don't stand up for what's right. The word he uses for resist is the idea of retaliation. It's not don't stand for what's right, it's, it's don't get back at them, don't take revenge on them, don't retaliate against the evil that's done to you. Instead, Jesus says that your responsibility, our responsibility is to reverse the situation. The evil person intends to take from you, intends to demean you, but the follower of Jesus is called to serve them, to honor others. And Jesus uses four examples that I think are really helpful. Uh, four examples from everyday life to show how we can serve people uh, who hurt us, how we can serve people who offend us. And the first one uh, is about what you do when someone offends you personally, when someone offends you publicly. You know, when so the idea of someone slapping you in the face, walking up to you and slapping you in the face, that's a slap in the face is, is less painful and more insulting, right? A slap in the face, I've never really seen, except in the movie, is someone get like slapped in the face and they like hit the deck and they're unconscious. You know, that's a heck of a slap, right? A slap in the face is more of, a, more of an offense, more of an insult than it is pain. Um, and instead of responding by insulting them back or, or escalating the violence uh, by, you know, maybe punching them in the face, Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. Instead of lashing out to defend yourself, you intentionally stay in a vulnerable position 
so you can be able to serve the person who hurts you. A lot of people have a problem with this teaching from Jesus. Uh, They say it makes us weak. Uh, It makes us doormats and people will walk all over us. But in my experience, turning the other cheek takes more strength than striking back at someone. Um, In in my experience, exercising restraint is more difficult than getting revenge, than lashing back. And that's what Jesus is asking us to do. Turning the other cheek means that we're so secure in ourselves that we don't have to retaliate to the evil done to us by using more evil. Uh, Two wrongs don't make a right, as they say, right? And I can't remember the last time I was physically slapped in the face. Not gonna tell you it's never happened, but it's been a while. I can't remember the last time, but I do remember the last time that someone insulted me on Facebook. When that happens, do you retaliate? When that happens, do you escalate the situation? Because if you do, you could lose the chance to love that person in a way that shows them the love of Jesus. And then Jesus moves on to another example. What if someone goes further? What if someone attacks me legally? What if someone takes me to court? Uh, Jesus is talking about the, the, you know, suing you for your shirt. And the shirt that he's talking about is the, the long-sleeved inner robe that a person would wear close to their skin. Uh, and the coat that he talks about is the outer robe, uh, which is probably the most important piece of clothing that uh, a person at the time could own. And Jesus makes this really surprising demand of us. When a person unfairly tries to take things from you, instead of launching a counterattack or a defense, practice generosity by giving them more. That's hard. I've never been sued in court, but I have had people take things from me. I have had people not pay me what they owe me. And when that happens, will you go after them? Will, will, will you try to defend your property? Will you take a stand for this, for this is mine and this is right? Because if you do, you could lose the chance to give generously in a way that might show them the grace of Jesus. Now, the third example may hit even closer to home. What if the government forces me to do something that I don't want to do? In Rome, government or military personnel could requisition civilians for official business. They could uh, just grab someone off the side of the street and have them help with uh, road construction or building a public building. Uh, They could force people on the spot to help with really almost anything that they wanted. And this is what happened to Simon of Cyrene. I don't know if you remember Simon when he was forced to carry the cross of Jesus on his way to the crucifixion. Uh, Jesus was having a difficult time carrying his cross and so the soldiers uh, just kind of co-opted Simon, who was standing in the crowd, and, and he had to come out and, and he had to carry the cross. He had done nothing wrong, uh, but it was the, the, the soldiers, the government's prerogative to force people to serve. And, uh, and that was common practice. It was common practice for a soldier uh, to force a citizen to carry his gear for up to a mile. Uh, under Roman law, that was about the limit. And then, so then Jesus takes it further. He says, go the mile that you're required to go. The law says you have to do this. So go the mile that you're required to go. Then go another mile as an act of service. See, if you just do what you're required to do, that's not really service, that's obligation. Jesus says, go another mile, because then it's service. Then the person, you know, then you don't understand at all. Well, I know why you went one mile, but why in the world would you go another mile? This doesn't make any sense to me. And I've never had a soldier force me to work for them, but I have disagreed with government practices before. Shocking. 
And when that happens, when you disagree, will you resort to trashing the people who work in government to try to take revenge? Because if you do, you could miss an opportunity to show, them, to show them the way that service is supposed to look, the way service looks in the kingdom of God. Now, if you thought that one was tough, I'm right there with you, by the way. This is not me on a high horse. These are very difficult for me. And if you thought that one was tough, check out the last one Jesus throws out here. He says, give to those who beg and borrow from you. I don't want to hear that. Because this isn't just about giving to your friends and family. In fact, the word that Jesus uses right here uh, when he says those who ask almost always refers uh, to the poor begging for help. And the word that he uses for borrow, someone who wants to borrow from you, it's the same word he uses in Luke chapter 6 for giving someone a loan when, they, when you know that they can't repay it. So what if the person who's begging you for, for money isn't really poor? What if I see them, you know, driving this fancy car and then they ask for money? What, what do I do? Jesus says, give. What if the person seeking a loan doesn't intend to pay it back? Jesus says, don't turn away. I don't know about you, but I do get requests for money quite a bit. And the thing Jesus is doing here is, is actually great. Jesus is freeing us from judging the merits of the request. Jesus is freeing us from the responsibility of deciding whether or not someone is worth it, someone deserves it, someone is worthy, and he's just leaving us free to serve. He's leaving us free to live generously while we let him judge people's motives. And I think that's actually very freeing the more I think about it. Because I get requests for money a lot, and when that happens, will you come up with an excuse why you can't give? Will you lie? Will you lie about why you don't have it and how you can't help? Because if you do, you could be passing up an opportunity to give to someone who is truly and legitimately in need. And this is some of the most difficult stuff Jesus ever taught, but uh, he also lived out all of these examples that he's giving us. Jesus isn't asking us to go somewhere he's not been before. First uh, Peter 2.23 says that when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus is asking us to choose love over retaliation. He's asking us to choose service over protecting ourselves. Regardless of whether we think the other person deserves our love and service or not, that doesn't really come into it. And Jesus doesn't stop there, because he's Jesus. And so he keeps going in verse 43 and 44, and he keeps going to correct this idea that we're called to love our neighbor but hate our enemy. Now, loving our neighbor is one of the central truths of the Bible, but hating our enemy, that's not in the Bible at all. And the interpretation of, that, of the law came from the idea that God hates evil. My enemies are doing evil things, which means my enemies must be evil people, which means that God must hate them, so I should too. So this is the line of logic that, that, that people followed to get to this idea, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. The problem is it's only half true. God does hate evil. Uh, the, the Bible reiterates that over and over, but God always loves people. And 2 Peter 3.9 says that God's goal is for everyone to come to repentance. Jesus points out that the sun and the rain don't discriminate based on whether a person is good or bad, and neither should we. 
Ultimately, each person is held accountable for their choices. And those who consistently choose evil will someday face judgment from God. But until that day, God's grace is available to everyone, regardless of whether you think they deserve it or not. You know why this is so hard for me? Because I like rules. I've always kind of been a rules follower. I mean, I went through the typical teenage rebellion stuff, but my rebellion was kind of lame compared to what, uh, what I've seen from teenagers. And uh, I've always kind of liked the rules. I've respected them. And I always want other people to follow the rules too. Um, I, I want the person who runs a red light or speeds past me on the highway to get pulled over. I root for that. Um, I get this weird sense of satisfaction when I see someone get what I think they deserve, right? Like, that's right. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, maybe a little bit of a bad thing, but it's not bad to want justice. It's not a bad thing to want justice to prevail. But it's wrong for us to bring the justice, right? It's wrong for us to bring justice ourselves. Now, there might be times when God uses me to bring justice. If you're a parent, those times are frequent. (laughs) There might be times when God uses you to bring justice, but for the most part, that role is reserved for authorities, Authorities like police and courts and government officials. My role in the kingdom of God is not bringer of justice. My role is serving others so that they can see a better way to live. And I think Paul lays this out beautifully in Romans 12. Uh, Paul, Paul goes, ends, ends Romans 12, one of my favorite chapters of all of scripture, ends Romans 12 this way in verse 17. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the legacy of those of us who follow Jesus. Overcome evil with good. It's God's job to handle the retribution. It's my job to serve others, even when they're my enemies. Now, before I wrap this up, I I need to take a minute to talk about social justice. Aren't Christians called to make the world a better place by righting the wrongs of society? Well, sort of. Christians are called to be salt and light in a dark and broken world. We make the world a better place by living like Jesus, by serving the people around us, whether they deserve it or not. We make the world a better place by turning the other cheek, by going the extra mile, giving to those in need, and, and not retaliating in we, even when we have every right to do so. That's the social justice that God is calling us to live out. Love your enemies. Now, Does that mean that we should never work to bring justice to these situations? Does that mean that Christians shouldn't work to help feed hungry people or meet physical needs? Uh, Of course it doesn't mean that. Of course it doesn't mean that. Does that mean that Christians shouldn't serve on the police force or be judges or be in government? Of course it doesn't mean that. Jesus isn't saying never seek justice. 
Jesus is saying, you need to leave the justice to me. If you're a Christian and you're serving in the police force, you observe this by doing your job the way you're supposed to do your job and not taking revenge. You don't make it personal. You carry out justice the way you've been trained. If you're a Christian uh, and you're a judge, you do this by, you don't make it personal. You carry out justice the way you've been trained. You pray for God's guidance in the best way to do this. So no, it's not wrong for Christians uh, to, to crusade for justice. There are some excellent organizations throughout the world that are doing just that. International Justice Mission is one that I'm familiar with. Uh, a group of Christians throughout the world that, that take these things through the legal system and work with governments in order for, for justice to prevail. That is important. Those things are important. What Jesus isn't saying, don't participate in that. Jesus is saying, don't make it personal. You can't take it into your own hands. Each of the examples that Jesus gives in in verse 39 through 42 is nonviolent, but also activist. There's also a very active component in what we need to do. It's just not actively getting back at people. It's actively serving people. It's resisting evil by choosing to do good instead. So how? How do we do it? How do we love our enemies? Uh, well, I don't have uh, this, this easy thing that's you know, like, okay, we'll all walk out of here and now we do this perfectly forever. But uh, I think there are some, some ways, some advice. I think focusing on what's good for them and not what bad they've done to me is a good first step. Bringing yourself to a place where you can pray for them, where you can pray for God to bless them, where you can pray for God to forgive them, I think that's a good first step. It doesn't mean we condone their behavior, but it does mean that we get involved in their lives so God can use us to bring them back to him. And the way that looks depends on the relationship. Loving an enemy looks differently with a friend or a family member than it does with a neighbor or with someone that I don't know very well. And I think the key is to ask, what does God want for this relationship? And what can I do to help make that happen? What does God want for this relationship with this person that's so awful to me? Why is this person in my life? What does God want with this relationship? And what can I do as far as it depends on me to make that happen? Instead of retaliating when my rights are violated, I turn the other cheek so I can forgive and I can serve my enemies and I can leave the retribution in God's hands because God, as we've seen in Romans 12, God claims the right to revenge for himself. And Jesus ends this part of the Sermon on the Mount in verse 48 by commanding us to be perfect. So I'm glad he's not setting the bar too high. The word that he uses is teleos. And that's not the word that's used elsewhere in the Bible for something that is without any sin. Teleos is usually translated as complete or mature. So here in Matthew, it's the idea of having a fully grown character. It's used almost the same way in James 1.4, where it says, let perseverance finish its work in you so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Now, Jesus uses it as a future imperative, which means that it's a commanded goal that should shape our lives. Jesus is challenging us to to become fully grown in our character. He's challenging us to become so secure in our kingdom identity that when we're wronged, we don't seek revenge, but instead we use it as an opportunity to love and serve our enemies, and we leave the justice to God. 
He's challenging us to love what God loves and hate what God hates, which means that while we hate the evil in our broken world, we never hate the broken and sinful people around us, no matter how they treat us. We don't have license to hate. There are forces in this world that are blatantly opposed to the truth of the Bible. They seek to undermine Jesus and his church and his values, but God does not call us to raise up an army and go to war. Not with people. See, instead, he calls us to love people with the love that Jesus modeled on the cross when he looked down at the people who did it to him and said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Jesus isn't countering the law of retribution in the Old Testament. Justice is just as important to God today as it ever was. Sin needs to be confronted and put in check so that it's not allowed to have free reign and ruin people's lives. Sin must be punished, but not by us. I'm going to say that again. Sin must be punished, but not by you. You are not the bringer of justice. God reserves that right for himself alone. And Jesus went to the cross to satisfy the price that justice requires. Jesus took the punishment we all deserve. We're transitioning to a time of communion, and we do this every week. We take communion together every Sunday as a reminder and a celebration of just that fact that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God asks us to leave the justice and retribution up to him. He calls us to come to the cross and lay down the burden of getting back at those who have hurt us. Jesus' death on the cross frees us in every way. It frees us from the penalty of our own sin, and it frees us from the burden of punishing those who hurt us. So as the communion trays are passed this morning, take a set of cups and hold on to them until we can all take communion together. And as you're holding those cups, think through, and this might be painful, but think through some of the ways that you've been hurt. And some of the things that you're carrying around with you. The things that you're, the th- maybe you don't have active plans for revenge, but the things that you're carrying around with you that if I ever see this person again, they better run. Think through those things and think about Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. Think about what Jesus did for you on the cross. What, what Jesus did for those who, who drove the nails into his body when he looked down from the cross and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Think about that and realize that you're no different than the people who drove in the nails. And Jesus' response to you is no different either. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Think about the example that Jesus sets for all of us. And when everyone's been served, we'll take communion together. Let's pray. God, this is really hard stuff. I've been struggling with this stuff all week long. And Father, I guess I want to thank you for the ways that you challenge us. I guess I want to thank you that it's not easy. 
I guess I want to thank you that it's, it's not simple. Because that's one of, the, one of the ways that I understand that it's real. Life is hard. And following you is hard. You've called us to take a narrow road, to not walk the wide path that everyone else walks, but to be different, to to live differently. And so, God, I pray for strength. I pray for strength to do that. Strength that when when people around us hurt us, that we respond to them the way you've called us to respond to them, that we respond to them the way you yourself have responded to them. God, I pray that we would be salt and light and represent you well. Because, Lord, you sent your son to die on a cross, to take a death that we deserved, a punishment that belonged to us, so that we could be free. Free from our own sin and free from the, 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 the guilt and the shame and the hurt that eats us up inside that leads us to seek revenge. Father, thank you for setting us free. It's in Jesus' name.